Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Acknowledge Dogs Podcast. I am your host, Michael, owner and head trainer at matadorcanine.com. You can head over to matadorcanine.com and schedule a free consultation today. We can get you started doing some virtual online coaching for you and your dog. Build the strength and bond that you want and fix all those problem behaviors. Reach your goals at matadorcanine.com. Today, joining me on the show is our guest, Lindsay Hines. Lindsay Hines has been training dogs and specializing in dock diving for a number of years. And today, we go in depth about conditioning, dock diving, and the triumphant record-breaking jump after a devastating injury. Lindsay Hines has three dogs, Pogo, Zilla, and Blooper. And today, she shares all of her knowledge right here on the Acknowledged Dogs podcast. So, thank you for being on the podcast, Lindsay. Tell us first, how did you get into working with dogs? What was the moment? Did it slowly sneak up on you? Was there a specific event? How did you get into dogs? I'm so funny story is essentially I was born doing dog stuff. Um, one of my earliest memories is like two years old crawling around on the floor with my dogs, insisting that my mom feed me marshmallows like dog treats and I did tricks for them. Um <laughs> <laughs> I I had a beagle who was not the most cooperative dog in the world and I I taught her as many tricks as I could and was training the neighbor's dog by the time I was like 5. Um so it was it was something that I did pretty much from as early as I can remember but horses were actually my main like profession goal. And um, I went through most of my childhood and teenager years and college years with the goal of being a professional horse trainer and, and competing at the upper ends of the jumper world. And um, the dogs were what I did for fun. And after working for multiple horse trainers that could barely make their bills, even though they were bringing in so much money and working, you know, 18 hour days in the barn and it was so much work for so little results and um it gave me no time for nothing else and i was like you know (laughs) i also am doing the dogs for fun and that's way easier with way less overhead and so there just sort of was this little bit of a, a paradigm shift where i went from doing the dogs for fun and the horses professionally to doing the horses for fun and the dogs professionally that's awesome. That's awesome. Now, I think you, <laughs> you, for horses, you did English or Western? I did everything. But what I was, my main concentration was, was English. I rode hunters and jumpers primarily. Oh, very nice. And what did you do yeah. as the hobby for the dogs? Were you just doing tricks and things like that? Or were you actually starting to get into more serious stuff? Well, back then, that was sort of, I'm old, and that was sort of the beginning of dog sport time. Like, there weren't really a lot of sports other than obedience. Mm-hmm. And I had a mixed breed um, growing up after the Beagle, um, and he, it was before you could compete really with mixes, and they opened up the American Mixed Breed Obedience Registration. And so my goal was always to compete in obedience with him, but he had other plans. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> they so all- I, they, they all do. 
And so I did all that kind of stuff with him training wise. I never competed just because it was not his thing. And I was, you know, like 12 when he was born. Um, but then I had Jack Russell's in high school and through that, and I started competing with Jack Russell's and started an agility at that point in the, in the mid nineties and started an agility in the mid nineties. And then I've never been one that will shove a dog in a box because it's something that I want to do. Um, even though I'm definitely more passionate about certain dog sports than others. Um, if a dog tells me, no, thanks, that's not my thing. Then I may dabble in the stuff that I really want to do with them, <laughs> but I will focus on whatever it is that they say, I really like this. And if that involves sitting on the couch and doing nothing, that's fine. But I typically don't um, lend myself to those kind of dogs. <laughs> oh, of course not. <laughs> okay. So that's awesome. So you're, you're looking at what the dog wants to do more so than what you want to do. You're going with the, the natural excitement of the dog. Yeah, and I mean, you can purchase a puppy from a great breeder that has been bred with lots of generations of, you know, whatever your sport is that you want to do, and you get the puppy, and you do all the foundation work, and you do all this stuff, and it still just may not be that puppy's thing. Um, you know, as the dog grows up, it, I mean, it'll, most of the time, they'll do it, because the types of dogs I have tendency to get are usually fairly biddable and like to do stuff with you. But there's a big difference between, I mean, you can see it in the dog between doing something that they want to do because they want to do it with you and doing something because the dog is like, yes, this is the best thing ever. Absolutely. Absolutely. So tell us your, your world record border collie, right? Yeah. You, you have record. Tell us how that happened. How did that come to fruition? That was also kind of an accident. Um, at least initially it was. Uh, Cappuccino was um, was not my dog until he was almost two. Uh, I still had Jack Russell's when he was born, but he belonged to a really good friend of mine. Um, he grew up and learned how to swim in the pond at my house. I loved this dog like he was my own from, from very early on. And when he was about a year and a half, um, the couple who owned him divorced. And about a year later... Um, his, his owner was working more and more and he was like, I just, I really can't do with him what I know he needs to do. He was kind of one of those dogs that from day one, there was just something about him. You knew he was going to do something pretty spectacular. Mm -hmm. He was just a really cool dog. And he said, you know, I had told him multiple times, um, if Cap needs anywhere, you know, if you contact anyone else but me, I will be really, really mad. And so he finally said, you know, do you want him? And I said, well, yes. And so um, he was, he was about 18 months, two years when I got him. And I was doing shows at the Texas State Fair at the time with my Jack Russell. I was running agility at these shows. And I brought him because he had basic disc knowledge. He had been off the the side of my pond swimming and we had a dock set up there and, and, um, Brisby and I goofed around, played a little bit of disc with him and a couple of the shows at the fair. And he was like, yeah, this is awesome. And then in between shows, I was jumping him off the dock and the guy that wound up being my boss for several years was like, uh, so do you want to come and start doing the shows with him on the dock? And I was like, yeah. And that 
by the end of, of the fair, which usually runs three weeks, he said, we're going to break a record with that dog. And he was jumping like 18 feet at the time, but like he yeah. never jumped significantly. And so he said, this dog is going to be able to break a record. And so I started working. I worked for him for a couple of years and we traveled around um, all over the, the country and then went to Mexico and did entertainment shows for Purina. And he, so we, we jump, you know, several times a day and it wasn't really practice because it's very different being in a show and then actually practicing, but I was able to kind of figure out what worked for him. And, um, he was, he was pretty consistent and then he sort of stalled out, um, and wasn't really pushing the distance anymore. Um, you get to a certain point where you start reaching, you know, kind of like, where the dog's limitations are going to be because obviously everyone has a cap physically where you're going to wind up and so i thought i know this dog has more in him what can i do to help him get it and um, that was when i developed the um, training system that i still use to this day and started doing some conditioning work with him that sort of also was involved um, kind of directly to the doc stuff. Um, it wasn't like a standalone, like I was conditioning him specifically to, to do the doc work. Um, and then, uh, and so the crazy thing is, oh, the craziest part about the whole thing is we traveled all that next year and um, we went to a couple, there weren't really many events back then, but there were a couple events close enough to compete at. We competed and he did okay. And then, uh, but most of what I did were the entertainment shows. And when you're on the road like that, it's very hard to actually compete and do entertainment shows because you're usually on the road for four, you know, eight weeks at a time. And then you might be home for a week or two and then you're gone again for an extended period of time. Um, while we were on the road, the we, um, we competed in the Incredible Dog Challenge regionals won that um that was like in april or something um, and then we had all the tv appearances from that we did letterman and, and stuff like that and then we were waiting for october for the finals and that's when my boss was like you're totally gonna break this record and um in august we were at a show in indiana and he ran up the stairs to the dock and stepped wrong stuck his back leg through the step as he was running and apparently, unbeknownst to me at the time, he partially tore his cruciate. And so he acted like he was fine. He jumped, but he just had no power. Um, and after working with him in between the shows, and he, I knew something was wrong. So scratched him for the rest of that. But we're doing shows still, so it wasn't like I could just go home and, and get him looked at. Um, and I finally got home. And went to a regular vet. And the vet was like, oh, yeah, definitely going to have to have surgery. You know, he's going to be out for six months, maybe a year. Forget, you know, whatever else your goals were. And I was like, you know, I just, I'm, I want a second opinion. And I found an alternative medicine doctor who did Chinese medicine and, like, chiropractic and acupuncture and all this, like, biofeedback stuff. And I was like, I don't care. I'm willing to try anything at this point. And he wound up, we started at the end of August. By the end of September, he was pretty much completely sound. Um, by the 1st of October, he was starting to get back into work. 
um, the week before the challenge, the state fair was going on. So we started trying to jump him a little bit at the fair just to make sure he was going to stay sound, competed at the IDC, and that was when he broke the record. Wow. So he, he had an injury. <laughs> yes. He like had an injury. right with- before recovered from it and then still broke the record yes and it was a major injury it was a partial cruciate tear like and it was going to be either you've got to do like major surgery and he's going to be out but it wasn't going to like affect him in a negative way to try to fix it in another manner and then do the surgery later if it didn't if it didn't work right but that's incredible to to go through all that (laughs) In yeah, a couple he was months. An awesome dog. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, it was amazing. It was just like, well, okay. <laughs> so so share what what is what was the regimen? What was the training routine that you did? So, I mean, before the injury and then I guess during the injury. What what would what did you do different? So it was it was actually really hard because while all this was going on, I was living on the road. And what that means is you live in a hotel. And so, you know, you're at your show site during the day, but that's usually like at a fairgrounds, you know, doing a state fair, or it might be like an amusement park or something like that. So you're very restricted in like what you would normally consider activities for a dog. And um, so I really had to think outside the box for what I could do for him. And one of the things that I started doing was I did a lot of basically jump grids back from my horse showing days. One of the things we did not only to help condition the horses for their jumping, but also to help them adjust their strides, um, how they can collect and take shorter strides that are that are more um, controlled and powerful versus extended strides where they're really moving a little bit faster, but without usually not quite as much power because you have more speed um it's harder to get speed and power uh, but you teach them how to adjust their strides you you teach them lots of things with these jump grids and so I started doing jump grids with him but the thing that I did that was kind of a little bit different than a typical jump grid is the dock is always a certain length it's usually it's 40 feet I don't remember what it was back then I think it was still 40 feet it's been I mean it was like early 2000s And I think the dock was still 40 feet. And so my jump grids, the dog always started like at that 40 foot mark. And then the last jump in the grid was at the, basically what would be the, the pretend end of the dog. So he was learning these jump grids, but they were always within the parameters of what he was going to do on the dock. So he was learning how to adjust to striding, running down the dock. He was learning how to collect. He was learning how to extend. And he was also developing the muscles that he was needing to be more powerful, both on the dock and then on the takeoff at the end of the dock. Because I mean, there's essentially three parts of the dock of dock jumping. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You have the dog running down the dock, you have the dog pushing off at the end of the dock, and then you have the dog going through the air. So um, as far as what he was doing, once he pushes off the end of the dock, there isn't a whole lot that he can do. Um, so it was all about what what I can work on him with while he's still, you know, touching dry land. <laughs> and, 
And so we did a lot of those jump grids. Um, and then from, I was real into um, powerlifting when I was in high school. And so I knew a lot of, of fitness things from the human side of, of it. Um, and so we did a lot of school, like the dog version of, of a human squat to help develop his hind, hind end and the power that he was going to need to push off the dock and also to power down the dock because the faster he can run and still collect at the end of the dock, the better jump he's going to get. And so we did a lot of, of squats. And um, these were just things that I was sort of coming up with from the human perspective of like, what can, what can I mimic that I used to do that can help him in this, in this aspect? And so we did squats, we did um, sprint drills were another thing that I did with him some and then I taught him. So it's very hard to mimic the dock and the water on dry land. But you also aren't really training a whole lot just drilling. You can teach the human side, the throwing aspect of it. But as far as what the dog is doing, the dog is not getting a dog that is already understands what their job is, is not getting a lot out of drills on the dock. Um, and so I developed a dry land system where I could sort of tweak my throw and work on that push off at the end of the dock without actually having to drill on the dock all the time. Um, and so that's I actually used that to this day to teach dogs how to track the toy in the air instead of just, you know, wait till the toy hits the water and then jump in and get it or just follow the toy. Cause a lot of dogs, even if they're watching it, they're just following it. They're not actively trying to catch it. And um, so, yeah, that was sort of, <laughs> that was a lot of what I did to build up for that. And then after he had his injury, um, because he had been on restricted activity for a few months, we did a lot of groundwork where he was just walking, trotting, cantering and then um we worked on transitions like walk to canter and walk to like full out run and walk to trot and trot to run to and just back and forth obviously we didn't start out doing like walk to full-on explosion runs but built up to that as he was progressing in his recovery um and then did started integrating the jump drills back in just really, really low and a little more spread out. So he didn't have to, um, he didn't have to collect his stride so much and then worked a little bit more on the collection as his recovery continued. <laughs> wow. it, was, it was, yeah, it was, it was pretty much like one of those things where it was like, is he going to be okay? Is he going to be okay? Is he going to be okay? Okay. He's released to go back into training. Now I have like two weeks. <laughs> Right, right. So, <laughs> it was it, a lot of it was how can I, you know, push him enough to know that he is truly healed, but not do too much to where he's potentially going to re-injure himself or injure himself completely new because he's out of shape and he's doing too much. So there was a lot of a very fine balance as he came back of trying to do a whole lot of things at once as far as trying to see if he truly is okay, you know, getting his fitness back and then, you know, getting him to that point where he could, he could compete again. <laughs> it was a lot. 
that sounds like a lot. A lot to try to figure out on your own as well. You know, you, yeah. You're discovering this as it's happening and trying to yes. make it work the best way you can. So, yes. and I was limited on my equipment that I had too, because again, I was on the road in a hotel. Right. <laughs> right. You got to make everything work the best you can. Mm-hmm. So what I know about conditioning with dogs and using, you know, fit paws equipment or other things like that, a lot of people prefer to lure the dog because you can control the movement and the weight shifts. What's your opinion on that? And did you find targeting or shaping actually helped them in any way? Or did it help them in targeting the toy, perhaps when you're working on jumps? Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, so on the, so that's kind of two different things. But as far as the like using props and doing the more controlled fitness exercises. For that, a lot of it depends on the individual dog and it depends on the trainer. Um, I have found that, especially like when teaching seminars, I come into contact with a whole lot of variety of different dogs and handlers. And typically what I teach is I teach more of a target manner over a lure. It's still basically a lure, except the biggest issue I find with luring on equipment is that people don't read their dog well enough. And so a lot of times it often creates distrust in the handler from the dog. And what I mean by that is, let's say the dog, they're asking the dog to do something on a piece of equipment the dog's never been on or is uncomfortable with or whatever. Because a lot of times people accelerate the props that they're using at a, at a rate that's a little faster than they should be doing. Um, and so the dog isn't strong enough to really be doing some of these exercises sometimes and it, and it worries them. But what I find with the luring is the people are like, you know, they're taking the food, they're luring the dog, the dog is following. And then when the dog starts to hesitate, the person is like, you know, here is the, you know, I've got the food, I'm luring you. And then the dog will start to say, well, okay, I'll come, you know, a half step more. And then they they immediately lure the dog further. And so instead of breaking it down into smaller pieces and be being like, okay, you're clearly worried. So I want your neck to stretch an inch further. Here's your cookie. Now I want you to, your neck to stretch another inch. Here's your cookie. Now I'm going to throw cookies away so you can relieve the stress because obviously you're worried about this. And now you're going to come back and I want you to come to this point, come to this point and here's your cookie. So that's not typically what I see with people when they're luring. A lot of it, if the dog is concerned, is pushing the dog past the point that I'm comfortable. And that can oftentimes make the dog more uncomfortable with the equipment and, in the exor- and with the exercises to begin with. Um, and so because when I'm teaching, especially if I'm teaching like a large group of people or I'm doing um, a lot of auditors, I don't have the ability to control what those people are doing outside of when they're working directly with me. And so because of that, I teach mostly targeting. And that way there is a specific point where the dog is getting rewarded frequently. And so I usually use something like a food bowl with treats in it for a visual target. because it's easier to just have the reward in a bowl in your hand and be the target instead of trying to use your hand as a target, plus maybe have a clicker, plus maybe have cookies in the pocket or somewhere else. Um, 
it's it's a quicker reward delivery system that way. And so often what I'll do is I'll have the bowl. I have my hand. You touch, you come here and touch my hand and here's your cookie in your mouth immediately. And now I'm asking for a slightly different change of, of um, position. Here's your target. Here's your cookie. Um, it's hard to, to um, explain that with just words without using, using visuals, but I think you can probably get what I'm, what I'm going at. Um, so that's why I like to use targets in that situation. And when you're trying to get more um, precise movements, the target can be a little bit more helpful um, because the dog's not just stretching to get a cookie. They're not just kind of blindly following a cookie for lack of a better word. I mean, I know that's not generally what luring is, but a lot of times, especially when you're using high value treats and it's a high rate of reinforcement, the dog will get to that point where they're just like, I don't care, just put the cookie in my mouth. Um, and so the targeting can help shape the behavior a little bit. And I don't mean shape in, in the sense of actually like shaping a behavior, but shape the position of the dog by where you're positioning your target. And the body position and conditioning is so important. And it's like the whole body position and you can, you can take an exercise that is a safe, effective exercise and change the head position by a quarter of an inch. And now you put stress on the dog's spine and, and the dog's neck and, and it is now no longer a safe and effective exercise. So it's really important for the whole position of the dog's body to be paid attention to and in the right position. And what I find with, but what I find with shaping is with some dogs, it works wonderfully, but other dogs, and in my opinion, operant dogs are like, all the behaviors, what do you want? Yes, this is great. And so they're throwing behaviors at you. And when you're doing something that has to be fairly precise, like conditioning, it can be a little bit harder to actually get the behavior that you want in the manner that you want it because of the enthusiasm of the dog. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I completely agree. <laughs> so like Pogo, who was the one that when I was teaching the seminar, she went with me to every single seminar. She was my demo dog. She worked with all of the people at the seminars when we did the treadmill stuff. Um, she is a, extremely operant. I have never lured a single trick that I have taught her. And she hates to be touched because I was like, I'm going to teach a dog just to shape, you know, when she was a puppy and that was a bad idea. But, um, <laughs> and so like everything that she knows trick wise and everything else has just all been, it's all been free shape. And when we started doing a little bit of the conditioning stuff, a lot of the things she's just like, here, is it this, is it this, is it this one, is it this one, is it this one? And I'm like, okay, we've got to figure out something a little bit less enthusiastic. <laughs> and for some exercises, it's great. For some exercises, it works really well. Um, but for some of the other ones, it can just be too much. Absolutely. My my dog, Hawk, is the exact same way. He'll start doing yeah. spins and flips. And I'm like, right. okay, buddy, you got to right. slow down. We're trying to do something controlled here. Yes, yes. Especially when you add in like a piece of equipment, like a piece of football's equipment, and they're doing that on the equipment. And then you're like, okay, you're going to hurt yourself. <laughs> yes, and there, yes. And there has been a few times when Pogo has been like, you're not giving me enough information. So I'm going to start offering stuff like on a piece of equipment. And she slipped. And I'm like, you just hurt yourself. Yeah. <laughs> 
My dog has done the same thing. Yes. And you're like, I'm supposed to be a professional here. And I can't even do this with my own dog, you know? <laughs> I think everyone's had those thoughts before. Of course. <laughs> so next I want you to explain, we, we talked about it briefly in our before podcast meeting. You mentioned the SAID principle, I think I'm saying mm-hmm. it, S-A-I-D. Yeah. If yeah, you could go into a little bit of depth on that and what it is and how you use it. Sure. Um, so basically what the said principle is, is it's specific, because I can, I can speak, it's specific adaptation to impose demands. And basically what that means is, that's what the acronym is for said. Um, I'm sure you probably kind of figured that out when I said that. Um, <laughs> but essentially what it means is your body will get better at what you practice. And you need to be specific in the way that you practice in order to improve in that area. Basically, the body doesn't generalize well is the gist of it. Um, And so you have to be specific in your focused training to improve in certain areas. Like, for example, running distance is not going to help you if you're a sprint racer. You're not going to improve your sprint times necessarily by running distance. You may have good cardio, you may have better, you know, your heart may improve, but you aren't going to specifically improve sprint race times unless you're doing things specifically that are going to mimic what you're doing in real life in your sprinting. And, you know, a basketball player, for example, is not going to have the same type of, of workout as a linebacker is. Um, it's, it's two different sports and it's two completely different activities. And so different parts of the body in different ways are going to need to be conditioned. Um, and what they found is, um, is by changing the load and everything else that, that you're put under, your body improves in that area specifically. Um, and one of the, one of the interesting studies that is sort of, that goes along those lines is if like with tennis players, um, a tennis player that's been playing tennis for years, when, if you x-ray their arms, their dominant arm, the bones are actually bigger because the body has changed to adapt to the training that they're undergoing. Um, and it's the same thing. Like if you were to work out your left arm repeatedly and didn't work out your right arm, your right arm obviously isn't going to get stronger. Your left arm is. Um, <laughs> but where that where that applies in the dog world is so much of conditioning. A lot of times is just people like I have this piece of equipment and I'm just going to stick my dog on it and do stuff, and they want the conditioning to do something specific but they don't really have a specific plan. And a lot of times the stuff that they wind up doing with their equipment has no relation to what the dog is doing in sports. Um, And so it isn't really doing much to help that dog in the aspect that the person is trying to get to improve on. Um, And so you need to try to see what type of movements, what type of behaviors are involved in the sport that I'm doing. This is how it works in the human sports too, basically, but specifically for the dog, um, 
you're looking at what kind of movements are involved in this sport that I that my dog is competing in. And then you find exercises that mimic those movements as closely, obviously, as you can, because obviously a dog running an agility course at, you know, a very high rate of speed is not going to be an identical movement to something that the dog is doing in a controlled environment working on a piece of equipment, um, like a fit piece of fitball equipment. Um, but you're trying to get as close to those two things as possible. And also what it means is you can't only use that controlled training to get better you actually will have to train the actual movements as well you can't just rely on the you know the quote-unquote fitness portion of it um or else it isn't going to fully transfer over but it can be a very large portion of it um but so for example one of the things in dog sports i think that isn't thought about often enough but is a huge part of pretty much anything the dog does is deceleration um and collection so so much of what we're thinking about the dog doing is you know speeding up we want well they're running so we want to work on what's going to help them get faster and everything else but other than like the fast cat stuff where the dog is just running in a straight line, literally that's all they're doing. Every single sport is involving some form of deceleration and collection, whether it's the dock where the dog has to collect to take off at the end of the dock, or if it's agility where the dog is constantly decelerating and accelerating over jumps and turns and everywhere. Of course they have to decelerate to hit the entry of the weave poles. If they're, if they're coming off a really fast line or out of a tunnel or something like that. And that's not something that very many people think to train. Like how do you train deceleration? And I just does it naturally, but there are so many things that you can do to help the dog's core work. And that's um, that kind of deceleration collection and deceleration and collection are not exactly the same thing, but they're sort of, you're, they take a lot of the same muscles. Um, one of the things that is specifically deceleration and, and collection that I teach is when I do the treadmill and I have the platform at the top of the treadmill and the dog is standing with their back feet on the platform and their front feet walking backwards on the belt. If you look at that and put it, like you look at that picture and you put it into a sport picture it's a very similar motion of a dog trying to decelerate. They're engaging their core muscles, they're engaging their hindquarters, and they're using their front to essentially stabilize and, and slow themselves down. So that's something that's sort of a specific exercise for a specific aspect of what they do in sports. My favorite example of this, because it's probably if I had to pick one exercise that I would do with my dogs forever and ever, and that would be the only thing I can, like, I can specifically um, use as a fitness, like a fitness exercise would be squats. And the reason is, is everything takes their rear. Um, but so much is some form of pushing. It may be pushing over a jump. It may be pushing out and up, like at the end of the dock for the dock jump. Um, 
pushing over the little bitty low jumps um, and into the fly ball box and fly ball, um, pushing up to get a disc if you're playing frisbee. Like there's always some form of pushing from the rear in pretty much every sport. And so squats mimic that the best over any other exercise if, as far as a single exercise goes. Because depending on what your sport is, you change the elevation of the front feet, which changes the position, which changes sort of what you're trying to train. Like for my agility dogs, the front feet are elevated more because I'm mimicking what it looks like when the dog is, is pushing off to take a jump, to actually go over a jump, which I will differentiate really quickly. Jumping over a jump and jumping like off the end of the dock are two completely different jumping motions. Um, <laughs> they don't look the same. They're two different things. So I train those two things differently, uh, even though it's both a jump. And um, But so with my agility dogs, I have their feet, their front feet elevated, depending on the dog, but probably um, what I would consider like halfway between the floor and completely vertical, usually, um, to do my squats or my sit to stands. Um, and obviously, I guess I should preface that by saying that is not how we start out. It's a very gradual process. <laughs> but that's where we wind up with it. Go zero to 60 very quickly. 45 degree yeah, angle right away. Exactly. exactly. You, would not, you would not even believe how many people do that. That's why I was like, ah, I need to practice this. <laughs> They're like, here, here's an unstable surface for my dog that's never done a squat before. And that's where we're starting. And I'm like, okay, no, <laughs> that's not, that's not what we're doing. You got to so, split the uh, behavior down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey guys, I just want to take a moment to thank today's sponsor. Sponsor for today's episode is Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free, and there's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will even distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership, and it's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. That's where this podcast was made, and maybe that'll be where your podcast will be made. Download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. Only because of the dog's fitness level. Um, but when you're training a behavior, regardless of whether it's a fitness you know, behavior or not, there's a lot more to it than just the action of the behavior. And the dog's body position, especially in fitness, is very, very important. And so just teaching the behavior a lot of times is not actually getting the full understanding of the dog of it's, it's not just this behavior. It's also this body position. Um, like for example, with the squats, give me any dog that has, you know, that wants food, um, and is comfortable with touching things. And I can teach them to do a squat in five minutes you know, do a sit to a stand. It, it's not a difficult concept to learn, but is the dog's body position where it needs to be? Most likely not. Um, sorry, I'm about to, the dog's just 
ran out of water and they're looking at me like I'm a horrible person. So hopefully this, <laughs> this isn't going to, uh, hopefully it's not going to sound like I'm like peeing or something. <laughs> so filling up their water real quick. Um, but so, you know, so it's, it's about teaching the, the actual behavior, but then tweaking that behavior to where the position is also correct. And then once you have the behavior with the proper positioning, then you start working on it becoming a fitness behavior. And then you can raise the, the level of difficulty in the, as they become more fit. Um, but it's, for me, what I do when I'm teaching, when I'm first teaching a behavior or teaching somebody to teach a behavior, I tell them, to a certain extent, just help the dog understand the behavior. Teach them the behavior. And don't worry quite as much about exactly where their positioning is. Now, in some aspects of it, the positioning can affect the learning of the behavior. Kind of like how when we were talking about the handstand, how if the dog's head is up, it becomes much more difficult for them to actually do the behavior of reaching back with their back feet. So rewarding and making sure their head is down enables the behavior to become easier. And even at that aspect, if the head is up, it can put strain on the spine, even with something as um, as low reps as, as teaching and introducing a behavior where you're shaping it and you're constantly changing your criteria. Um, but in, a, in other aspects, it's not quite as important. Um, like, for example, the squat. If a dog is learning, I need you to put your front feet on this little board and keep your front feet still and then sit and don't bring your back feet onto the board when you're sitting, which is very difficult for a lot of dogs, especially if they've been like place trained. Um, then I'm amazingly worried about can the dog start a sit without moving those front, moving their feet, either moving their front, their back feet onto the board or moving their front feet off the board. And so oftentimes at that, I don't care if the dog is looking left or looking right or maybe, you know, not sitting super straight or maybe their feet are out a little weird because I'm, I'm more concentrating on their feet staying still. Um, and so at that point, that is a little bit more important. And then once the dog understands the concept, then I'm worried, working on okay, your feet are out too wide. I'm not asking for this sit. I'm, I'm going to reset you and bring you in to where you have a more square sit before I ask for this behavior. Um, so some of it will depend on exactly what you're working on. But in most cases, because in the early stages, you're changing your criteria so frequently um, that I, that you're not doing like tons of reps with the dog in some weird position, um, <laughs> that it's not quite as crucial of, you know, being super mindful of having a perfect body position. Um, but then once the dog understands the basic behavior, then it's really important to go back through and make sure that you have a good body position for each rep that the dog is doing so that the dog doesn't potentially hurt itself and so that it's actually getting out of the exercise what it needs to be getting out of. Um, you know, I mean, if you saw somebody at the gym that was, you know, like hunched over and trying to do bicep curls or something, you'd be like, what are they doing? So it's kind of the same thing. Like the whole 
posture and positioning of the dog is critical to the fact that the the actual fitness behavior is doing its job. Um, and then once the dog can do that, sorry, I got a little bit off track. Once the dog can do that, and you're doing some regular reps with the dog and the dog is understanding and, and you can do a few sessions with your dog throughout the week and you don't see any negative effects from it, then you can start raising the criteria to make the behavior more difficult. Um, essentially, just like you would if you added more more weights to your weight, at the, I mean, at your, to your more at the gym it's going to transfer to the dog the same way you're making the behavior more difficult. Like you might raise their feet or you might make the prop unstable or um, you might ask for a more controlled sit and a more controlled stand. Um, slower in that situation is much more difficult. And so there's lots of ways you can gradually raise your criteria as the dog becomes more fit. And then once you get to that aspect where the dog is fit enough to be doing some, what I would consider significant training specifically for your long-term goals at that point, um, then I'm tweaking it to, to my actual, like what sport is this dog concentrating in right now? And that's where I'm going to change some of the, that's where I'm going to tweak some of the things like how high is the dog's feet um, in a squat? Um, what's the angle that the dog is in? Um, is the prop stable or unstable? Things like that. Now, since you mentioned positioning and right, so if the front paws are up and you're working on a squat and you need to mm -hmm. position their back legs, do mm -hmm. you move the dog or would you prefer to teach like a hip target or do you just kind of reset them completely working on proprioception, finding out where their back legs are? Well, Typically, I look at a dog's conformation for one. Um, some dogs will have their their back legs set on at a slight angle. And for those dogs, I'm not going to nitpick and make them be straight because that can potentially put more strain on them than letting their legs be at what would be a natural stance for them. Um, but as far as what I'm doing as far like with their feet moving versus non-moving, is that what you're talking about? Um, no, meaning let's say you wanted or in them in between a, reps. If you wanted them in a very specific position. Okay. And they started to go out of a line. Oh, okay. How um, would you get them I'm back? I'm just gonna reset. I'm just gonna reset. I'm gonna throw okay. a treat off the prop and then I'm gonna bring them back. Um Generally, I mean, if it's like something really simple, like the dog just kicked its leg out or something like that, that I might just back the dog up and bring them back forward or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but if the dog gets, you know, anything more than just some slight. Thank you, Lindsay, for being on the show and talking with us and sharing all of the knowledge that you have gained over the years. It was an honor to have you on. Thank you again. Well, thanks so much for having me. It was fun. So for anyone who's interested in getting into dog training or into the sport world or doesn't even have a dog and is thinking about getting a dog, what do you recommend to them? Where should they start? Um, my biggest advice would be, especially as someone who doesn't have a dog, would be start doing research and think about what matters to you. Because there are so many different training methods and training methodology 
and science-based research about things and anecdotes of things. And, and I think if you get into a methodology that you're not comfortable with, um, it can affect your whole view on dogs. Um, so I think researching and, and maybe watching a variety of, of trainers and seeing what you're comfortable with as far as what they're using tool-wise or if they're using um, more free type methods or things like that. Um, I think that will, will help people kind of understand what direction that they want to go. Um, and then as far as sports, I would say go and find some, some sports that you might be interested in that are in your area and go watch and find somebody who is running a dog that looks like they're having the kind of time that you would want to be having with your dog. Um, not necessarily the person who's maybe doing the best, but do they look like they're having fun? Look at their dogs. Are their dogs enjoying themselves? Does the person finish their run and walk out muttering about what went wrong and blaming their dog? Or do they walk out and amazing they were even if they had issues in the run um and then go up to that person and talk to them not immediately after they run because that's the time with their dog um but give them a minute and then approach the person and say hey I'm interested in getting involved in sports and and I enjoyed watching you and the relationship that you have with your dog because that's the important part the relationship that you have with your dog is is what I want to have with my dog can you point me in the right direction? Do you train? Who do you train with? Or, or things like that. And most people are extremely happy to help. They want to bring new people into the sports and they will bend over backwards to help you. Um, that would be my recommendation because the problem with going and just watching classes, I think sometimes is if you've never been in the sport before, you don't know the difference. So it's, you might walk into a class that's terrible, but because you don't have the you don't have the anything to compare it to but by watching a bunch of different people run at an event you see a lot more than you would and it can kind of give you a better perspective of of what's important to you um that's that's what I would do um if I was a newbie getting into the sport and and find a mentor um especially for dog training find approach someone and you know, see if, if you can either shadow them or even just chat, meet for coffee and, and ask them questions, pick their brain about stuff. Um, again, most people are really happy to help and, um, and want to share their knowledge. Thank you again so much, Lindsay. I really appreciate you taking out the time. Oh, you're very welcome. It was, it was great to be here and thanks for having us on. Us, I included the dogs in that, even though they didn't do anything but sit here. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to the episode. If you think family or friends would benefit from what you heard today on Acknowledged Dogs, please share it with them. You can post it on Facebook. We are also on every social media platform, so make sure you tag us, Matador K. 
Canine. You can also head over to Matador Canine and schedule a free consultation to talk about coaching and reaching the goals with your dog and those problem behaviors, reach the goals that you want, and have the dog that always listens. Are you guys on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook? Well, so is Matador. So if you're not following Matador Canine, then you should be. We constantly post tips and other tricks that you can use to help your dog reach the goals that you want, as well as promotions all the time for online coaching and virtual training for you and your dog.